0: Good evening, everyone. We will uh, continue tonight with our reviews of uh, the foundation of Buddhist practice as Venerable Chidron continues to uh, heal in her recovery from her hip surgery. Tonight we'll be looking at uh, Chapter 4, Choosing Spiritual Mentors and Becoming Qualified Disciples. Now. I thought this would be kind of self evident, but as I went back to see, um, Venerable taught these during the residential course on this book. And there are about six hours of teachings on this particular chapter, as far as I can tell, um, which we will not do tonight. Uh, uh, and so we'll squeeze as much as we can into an hour and a half. It'll be um, interactive and so forth. Um, and then we'll see, because it's an, it's an important, it's a very important topic for us. But let's start with just a few minutes of meditation and I'll set a motivation and then we'll go. So, think for a moment about um, what brings you to this session tonight. Kind of get clear about why you're here on the superficial level. Maybe it's just because it's on the schedule. for those tuning in you had to be a little more deliberate. <clears throat> it's just what you do on a Friday night or Saturday morning, depending. And let's spend a moment reflecting really how incredible it is that we are here right this minute wishing to share the Dharma together. <clears throat> Incredible that is, if you look at the course of our lives, what, you know, what led us here tonight? What was the journey? How did we meet the Dharma? What karma was awakened in us that made us interested? What causes actually make it possible that we can share this in English? We don't have to think very much to see how, um, how fortunate we are and how much kindness brought us to this moment. Kindness is um, the very source of our living. Actually, we eat by kindness. Our buildings are heated by kindness. The buildings we are sitting in are built by kindness. Living beings reaching out to benefit one another. And we're a part of that network or that matrix. So as we share the dharma tonight, let's also think about all the beings around us who don't have this opportunity right now, who so seek for happiness. Right now it seems very hard to find for many people. And that's just superficial happiness. So we can bring the wish to repay the kindness of sentient beings to our time together tonight. Generate a wish to see everyone free of the sufferings of cyclic existence. And make the determination that we, to repay their kindness, will take it upon ourselves to become Buddha so that we can help them. Make that motivation as pure and as strong as we can to imbue this time together tonight so that we can dedicate that merit for uh, realizing that goal for the benefit of all beings as quickly as possible. Okay. Choosing spiritual mentors and becoming a qualified disciple. So way back when, um, when Venerable Children was teaching at Dharma Friendship Foundation 20-plus years ago now, she didn't teach this topic very much, like maybe ever. Um, And I, I don't know, I don't know those reasons. But I do know that even then it was um, um, a difficult topic for people, at least in the United States, people in the West in general, maybe. And even when she did the um, Lamrim book, the meditation on the spiritual mentors is at the end of the book. Whereas in the Lamrim Chenmo and um, other uh, stages of the path teachings, it's like first. So, you know, what if you come to a Dharma teaching or a Dharma center kind of curious, and the first thing you learned is that you have to venerate the spiritual mentor to progress along the path. Would you be here? No, many of us really would not. So this is really confusing in the West. And um, Venerable says that um, Lama Tenpa is the term in Tibetan, relying on a spiritual mentor. It literally means depend on a spiritual mentor but it has often been also been widely translated as guru devotion. So this is further confusing. You know, the guru, especially, I don't know about later generations, but the guru was what the Beatles went off to India to follow. Guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, right? (laughs) Big guy with a white beard and some holy spooky spooky kind of guy, and then devotion. Well, we know what devotion is from our Catholic friends. So you follow some white bearded guy, and you give your life over and all your money, and fall on your knees and spend time meditating. That's the, that's the image that comes to my mind. Um. So it devotion implies worship surrender, giving all to the guru, which makes kind of imaginary stuff. So Venerable said this translation is much more grounded, relying on a spiritual mentor. And it negates the idea that it's, you know, we'll give our life to whoever will enlighten us without us having to do very much. That's not what this chapter is about. So if it's not guru devotion, what does relying on a spiritual mentor mean and how are you supposed to regard act in regards to them? Venerable Damcho told me recently something that really shocked me. She said that in Singapore, and I suppose all Chinese cultures, I don't know, even today, students bow to their secular teachers in the hall, in the classroom, even when they go for track or like drama class. Yeah, the students, Bow to their teachers. Good morning, Miss Rubies. <laughs> stand all stand at the same time and bow. Okay, they all stand at the same time and bow together. Huh? Right, right. I think, huh? Yes, uh, yes. Our teacher would have liked that. Yeah, and maybe they're more formal in Europe. Teachers, stand up.
1: You stand up. No,
0: we had to stand up. Yeah, put the microphone.
1: N- not anymore, and, uh, but in my early years. Yeah, you yeah. had to stand up. And uh, is Mirmalima here? No. Oh, I wanted to know how
0: it is in Central America. Um, Australia? Less formal? Less formal. And then here in America? No way. And in fact, Nicole told me another horrible story about a student who showed up in the dining room at the college where she teaches with not wearing nothing but a shirt, right? if she wasn't in the classroom like that, but you know, that's sort of the attitude and, the, and, and not even underwear, right? And she was defending it through her rights to do what she needed to do to respect for women's bodies or something like that, right? So in American culture, we are very confused about how we relate to ordinary teachers is my point. So then when it comes down to um, how to deal with a spiritual mentor, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a thing. So I'm very, very happy that um, His Holiness and Venerable Children have uh, you know, brought this uh, topic forward much more. Venerable has brought it much more forward in her teaching. And now here it is in the uh, second volume of this book. So Choosing Spiritual Mentors, Becoming a Qualified Disciple. And these are the two main themes of this book. Um, and it's divided somewhat in that way. But in Venerable Children's Oral Commentary, Tips for the disciples are given throughout the whole section on the spiritual mentor part two. So I'm going to rely a lot on her oral commentary. You can read the book and we'll read some of the book too, but there are some real precious gems in there that I want to just review. So the book begins, I mean the chapter begins, the Dharma is the key to having a meaningful and happy life now and in the future. Yes? You agree? Yes or no? To practice it seriously, two conditions must be present. The external condition is relying on the guidance of a qualified spiritual mentor. The internal condition is a precious human life with the freedom and fortune to practice the Dharma. I think that's a stunning statement. If we agree that the key to having a meaningful and happy life now and in the future is to practice the dharma, then we need two things. We don't need dharma books. We don't need the right kind of cushion. We don't need meditation music. We need the, to rely the relying on the guidance of a qualified spiritual mentor. And the internal condition is a precious human life with the freedom and fortune to practice the dharma. So notice here that His Holiness says qualified spiritual mentor, qualified disciple. And so that's what he'll describe in detail here in this chapter. So the, the um, important parts are we look for a spiritual mentor that is qualified. And the other half of that equation is we have to be a qualified student. And this is something that we develop over time. So what does qualified mean? In the West, I don't know, I wouldn't say just the West, in the developed world, when you hear someone has an occupation, we automatically assume they had proper training. They had a license. If it was as plumbers, therapists, accountants, all of our regular ordinary teachers, college professors, someone certified them through some process. Even in like religions, um, there's a certification process. You know, ministers go to school. Rabbis go to school. They have some kind of degree, they get an education, and then they have an ordination process and a ceremony. So there's a certification. In Buddhism, there is no certification. In the Tibetan tradition, there are some types because there's, um, um, through um, education, they get degrees, but there's no actual certification process. So it's true that um, a Geshe degree or a kempo degree, those te- people have spent many, many years studying. But there's no certification about what? Their realizations or anything like that. And there's no certification about their activities as teachers. Even Rinpoche's... Um, which have been recognized as the reincarnations of previous lamas um, are not certified. And sometimes she says, um, they even recognize the wrong child. So there's no real, I mean, how could you? How could you certify the qualities of a reincarnate lama? So in Buddhism, we have to be smart and do our own checking, is the point. We have to do our own certification.
2: Yes. There's a comment from online, it says, Shifu, teacher in Chinese, means teacher and father, which we view teacher as someone who raises us, nurtures us. They are like our parents.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. And it falls right in line with where we're going to go with this material. The importance of relying on a spiritual mentor is the next section. It says, when we are seriously interested in following the path, Forming a healthy relationship with a qualified spiritual mentor is essential. And he quotes Lama Sankapa. that says, Thus, the excellent teacher is the source of all temporary happiness and highest goodness, beginning with the production of a single good quality and the reduction of a single fault in a student's mind, and eventually encompassing all the knowledge beyond that. So source, source of temporary happiness, which means this life and mainly uh, fortunate rebirths, and highest goodness, which is liberation and enlightenment. The source of a single good quality, the reduction of a single fault, is based on relying on an excellent teacher? Why would Lama Sarkapa say
3: that? What do you think he means? Actually, my thoughts are that we are so swimming in ignorance that we can't see our faults, mm. oh, and even our societies are very confused, number one. Number two, um, I mean, that, I mean just intellectually, we can't see our faults, but then yeah. when you get down to the practice, we can't see our faults either, we need to have them <laughs> pointed out. Yeah, so that's what I think. I just feel like until I studied the 10 non-virtues and thought about them for a year and a half when I first met my teachers and both my places I went were emphasizing that, I just, when I did that, a, lot, a whole lot of confusion left my life and it had a lot to do with the society I grew up in and just the way I responded to it, it was like, you know, If you don't get caught, it's okay.
0: Yeah. Right? Right. We've heard over and over again, we're desperately seeking happiness and avoiding suffering. So we have no clue about how to create virtue. No
4: clue. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I just sort of went along with what society told me, my family, but creating virtue, this is what we hear from our teacher. And purifying
0: mistakes, and what constitutes a non-virtue, it's from the teacher.
2: Anybody else? I would have no idea how to work with my mind, how to apply
3: antidotes, how to identify what is an affliction, what isn't an affliction, how to apply the antidotes to them. No idea. Yeah.
0: So, in that way, this teacher is the source of good qualities and the reduction of faults.
1: Also, as a practitioner or student, I could just read everything and make my path, mm, but I may not see. Unfolds, so, the teacher is really essential there to guide it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, Venerable's comment was what Lama Tsongkhapa is saying here is we don't know much. <laughs> and if we let ourselves be trained, we slowly develop more good qualities. And that's the if. If we let ourselves be trained. She said, we walk into Buddhism and the teachers have the job of instructing us and we think we're very brilliant but we are lacking and that we're often resistant. Very, very resistant. (laughs) So especially at the beginning, right? The honeymoon is over and that's when you start to see the teachings start pointing out your faults. The teachings point out our faults first. And the teacher is supporting that endeavor. And we don't like that. So the teacher has to train us. And if we let ourselves be trained slowly, we can develop these good qualities. So that's what the role of spiritual mentors is. Um, I remember in India, Venerable Simke and I were on tour with Geshe Tenzin Dorji we went on pilgrimage and he was teaching at Shravasti, I think, because I was really sick. And he, he, um, he was teaching at the Korean temple and he was teaching new students. He was new to Deer Park at that time and it's one of the first teachings that he gave. So we we're sitting there and we're freezing and I'm sick. And the thing he stuck out—he just—he looked right out at us and he said, "It is the teacher's job to point out your faults." Nobody had ever said it to me quite so nakedly before. <laughs> it is the teacher's job to point out your faults because we come in with con- confu- i mean, enthusiasm, and uh, that's wonderful. But enthusiasm doesn't help us change. Change our mind in that way. You know, if we have a a deeper enthusiasm for the Dharma, where we're really willing to stick with it because we understand from our own experience that it will take us where we want to go, that's different. But when we're just kind of there, and it's new, and it's shiny, and I'm really excited about it, and then I have faults.
2: I have faults.
0: Don't they know how great I am? So that's when the teacher's job becomes more difficult. And that's when, um, that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of whether we stay students or not. Um, It's that moment, I think, when people choose whether they're going to stick with it or not. There was something here about this section. Yeah. So the job, the job description of the spiritual mentor is right here in this section. So the Qualified Spiritual Mentor guides us along the path by, it's written in that form, but I have nine things, giving us teachings, giving Dharma advice, giving us precepts, giving us oral transmissions, and in the case of our tantric um, mentors, empowerments. When we experience blocks in our practice, they teach us the antidotes to overcome them. When we have spiritual experiences, they help us to determine if these experiences were authentic or deceptive. And when our practice is progressing well, our spiritual mentors encourage us to continue. So that's the whole job description right there. Then we'll spend a lot of time on this um, sutta on page 78, that really tells the story of all of this list of things that the spiritual master does. And she spent a lot of time here because it's very confusing. Um, This is the Sutta on Half of the Holy Life. It's a very famous sutta. It's cited a lot. Um, And it seems to be misunderstood a lot. The story is that... um, Buddha is relating a a conversation, I mean, there is a conversation between Buddha and his disciple Ananda about how important the spiritual teacher is. And then Ananda says, thinking that successful Dharma practice is half due to a spiritual teacher and half due to our own effort, which is reasonable, right? The spiritual teacher gives all these things, I, the student... Do the thing. You could say half half. Thinking that the um, it, so thinking that our dharmakrasis is due to half this half of the spiritual teacher and half to one's own effort, Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, this is half the holy life. That is spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship, spiritual comradeship. However, as Holiness says, while our own effort is undoubtedly essential, of course, they can't do it for us. To emphasize that the spiritual path can't be actualized without a spiritual mentor, this is what the Buddha replies. Not so, Ananda, not so. This is the entire holy life. Ananda, that is spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship, spiritual comradeship. When a monastic has a spiritual friend, a spiritual companion, a spiritual comrade, it is to be expected that he or she will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. By following the method to Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship, spiritual comradeship. By relying on me as a spiritual friend, Ananda, Being subject to birth are freed from birth. Being subject to aging are freed from aging. Being subject to death are freed from death. Being subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair are freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. By this method, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship. Spiritual comradeship. So, we've all heard this in the context of spiritual friends. Um, I'm sure if you read any of those the Buddhist magazines, or even just hang out in Dharma centers, there's, it's often quoted as all oh, these Dharma friends are the are half the spiritual life. But what is it about those Dharma friends that we're hanging out with at the Dharma center that would be part of the spiritual life. I mean, actually there's not much logic to that assumption. What they're saying here, what His Holiness and Venerable Children were emphasizing here, is that the Buddha is calling himself the spiritual friend. Buddha is calling himself as the teacher, the whole of the holy life. And so because our teacher plays the role of the Buddha in our life, it is that spiritual friendship that we rely on that is the whole of the holy life. So it goes back to the very opening sentence they had here. That's so kind of direct. To practice it, to practice the Dharma, two conditions must be present. The external condition is relying on the guidance of a qualified spiritual mentor. So what this says I mean, is that no matter how much we think we can do it on our own, I like to read books. I don't like to follow one particular thing. And that's okay if we're testing out and we're exploring and we're, but at a certain point in our practice, when we are really ready to say the Dharma is the most important thing to make life meaningful and happy, then this condition of relying on the spiritual mentor or using or having the spiritual friend that is the whole of the holy life, is essential for us to be able to progress along the path. So, there's a little thing right on the next page where the Buddha Gosa talks about this. So this is like, how should we rely on this? He says this, when he dedicates himself to a teacher, he should say, I'm going to take these all to make them all girls, do you mind? When she dedicates herself to a teacher, she should say, I relinquish this my person to you, venerable. For the for one who has not dedicated her person thus becomes unresponsive to correction, hard to speak to, and not amenable to advice. Or she goes where she likes without asking the teacher. Consequently, the teacher does not help her with either material needs or the dharma and does not train her in the scriptures. Failing to get these two kinds of help, she finds no footing in the doctrine, and she descends to inappropriate behavior or to the lay state. But if she has dedicated her person, she is not unresponsive to correction, does not go about as she likes, is easy to speak to, and lives in dependence on the teacher. She she receives the twofold help from the teacher and attains growth, increase, and fulfillment in the doctrine. I think the twofold help is um, requisites and teachings, right? So this can also sound a little bit like disciple dedicates herself. It, what it means is you're a serious student. It's not worshipful devotion, but serious about practicing the de- path. And and when we say I relinquish my person. To you doesn't mean I give up my wisdom. What it does mean is I'm opening my mind to receive the teachings and to be trained and to look at myself and correct what needs to be corrected. That sounds great. How hard is that to do? It's hard. Let's just face it. Why? Because we're in charge of our own lives. We know who we are. We know what we need. We are, you know, in control here. Not you. And so that's the resistance (laughs) that our teachers are working with again, 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 year after year, decade after decade, working with us to try to... um, Open ourselves to dedicate ourselves to be trained. And venerable says somebody who doesn't do this isn't really serious. Eventually, so again, if you're just starting out, then look, and we'll get to it very soon to the qualifications of what you should look for in a teacher. But once we're good, we're on the path. We're clear where we're going. We we find the the. Um, have selected the qualities of the person we want to rely on then relying on them means I relinquish my person to you we have arrogance anybody notice and then we're in responsive to the correction the teacher tries to point out either in the general group I mean you may notice that sometimes our teacher teaches to the group as a whole, do you ever look over your shoulders sometimes and go, she talking to? Or, oh shoot, she's talking to me. <laughs> I get it. Or you're being uncooperative and your teacher says something to you and then we react to that. Um, or we complain, you know, or we we compare ourselves. Well, so-and-so got to do that. How come I don't get to do that? They just did the same thing. I want to go there too. Or people just refuse to do what they're asked to do or follow the schedule, or follow the community guidelines. I mean, there's lots of ways to do that. And when you're that kind of disciple, the teacher... I mean, Buddhaghosa says the teacher doesn't help you, neither with food or the Dharma. But the fact is, the teacher can't help us when we have that kind of mind. And if we stick with that kind of mind, then that disciple can't be trained, really. Until we're open or receptive, we are not. It's not possible to train us. Whereas, when willing to be trained, we are responsive, and we live in dependence on the teacher. So, dependence means that you stay with your teacher for a certain period of time to get trained. Right? You don't go off presenting yourself as a holy being, or decide now I'm ordained. I'm going to go start a dharma center and you know have my own disciples or. Later on in the text they talk about how um, how it comes to be in, in the Tibetan monasteries that you don't announce yourself as a teacher, but there's a process by which students um, help other students over the course of their development. And then, especially in the more advanced classes or doing reviews or whatever, if people find that you're a, a good teacher, then they'll, more and more people will start coming to you. And that's how a person becomes a teacher. Not because they set themselves up to be one. So we also have expectations of our spiritual mentors, and this gets us in trouble as well. So, And why? We come in with expectations that are based on our relationships with our secular teachers. And our spiritual mentor is not like that. The spiritual mentor is also not our boss, which is the other image that you come to the monastery with that's very different. It says in the book, the focus of this relationship, let's see, what
3: page are we on, I don't know.
0: The focus of this relationship is not only the conveyance of knowledge, which is what we expect from our secular teachers, but it's also character building The teacher is responsible for guiding students spiritually over time so that they become ethical, kind, and wise human beings with a correct understanding of the Buddha's teachings and the ability to meditate on them. Did you ever think you would study to become an ethical, kind, and wise human being? Was that ever an educational goal from kindergarten on? Yes? Chinese schools again, right?
4: For, yeah. When I was at teaching school, what I remember most was the one of a professor who said to us, "Are you teaching a subject or are you teaching a human being?" And she really nailed, you know, drilled it in us. You are ah. teaching a human being. Ah, that's you have beautiful. to care for their students that way didn't have such noble
1: experience, but <laughs> in my very early socialist communist education there was behavior training and uh, ethical conduct was part of it and um, what was the other one? Kind yeah, being kind. Um, yeah, it was very much if you are helpful to others, if you' are generous, social, you know
0: Well, I guess in that way it's true. If I think about kindergarten and learning manners and you know that sort of thing. Yes. Actually, you got grades. It's for that. You got grades for yeah, being a for good. for
1: behavior. G- yeah, and for discipline and all those things.
0: Oh, we did too. Works well with others. I remember. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah,
0: Self discipline works well with others. Well, maybe we were better set up for the, for the, our relationship with our spiritual mentors than I thought. <laughs> Who knew? They weren't teaching us to understand the Buddhist teachings or to meditate them on, though, right? That wasn't that part. No. No, because there's no qualifications, and because it's a very special, specialized relationship. In the context of Dharma, disciples and students are expected to investigate a protect, prospective teacher's qualities before taking him as one of her or his spiritual mentors. Because a mentor-disciple relationship is expected to be lifelong. Now, you didn't expect that from your kindergarten teacher, did you? No. No. Lifelong. That's also something to think about. We're entering into a relationship with someone... Yeah, expected to be lifelong. One other uh, comparison between secular and dharma teachers, the dharma teachers don't usually charge for the teachings. Students don't pay for the teachers but they support them by making offerings and volunteering their services. And the motivation for doing that is what? To repay their kindness, repay their kindness. it's gratitude. So offering service out of yeah. gratitude is a whole different kind of thing than paying to be educated. Even you have a great relationship with your best professors, it's not the same. It's absolutely not the same, and we don't have much model for this. But to think about all that we're actually receiving from the teacher, not just the teachings, not just even the example, but the actual guidance to help us figure out how we enact these in our lives. Then when we think about that, then the wish to repay that kindness is very strong. There is a natural hierarchy in the spiritual-mentor-disciple relationship. And it's useful for for subduing students' self-centered attitude. Did we mention self-centered attitude before? (laughs) No. (laughs) Students is a nice sentence. Students do not seek equal status with their teachers. So that's true for... um, yeah, that's true for any level of teacher that we have in the dharma. You know, we're not you. We may go out and have ice cream together, but it's not because we're buddies. It's because you're making an offering to your teacher. <laughs> Venerable said some Westerners complain about hierarchy in Buddhism. We don't want to serve our teacher. <laughs> we don't want to have the sangha go ahead us in line. She said. Also, I don't respect these seniors. I don't have to serve them. I don't have to listen to them. I don't like their good qualities. They don't have any, you know, that kind of mind in people. I will say I have not had the experience in lay centers where people have not been respectful for the sangha. That's not been my experience, but it has. But other people have had that experience. So I think that's um, that's where this came from. But the point is, regardless of whether we have that re- about the sangha or whether we're, you know, we take our teachers kind of as buddies or friends or or something, that mind state is an obstacle to our practice. To think I don't want to serve my teacher is an obstacle to our practice. And then she told us again how. Um, Yeshi always said, especially for the monastics, I am a servant of others, I am a servant of others, I am the servant of others, and that that should be our mantra, not arrogance. So servant for others in this case also means not just the teacher, but serving the sangha, serving the guest, serving the whomever. I'm the servant of others, whether we're lay or ordained. And on page 82, it just says again, In traditional monastic settings, teachers and students may live in the same building with students caring for some of the teacher's personal needs, such as preparing meals and so forth. So in the same vein, when we offer service to the teacher, we benefit. We get to see the teacher up close. We get to see how they make their decisions, how they live their lives. Um plus we get tons of merit. And this is a really important thing to think about. Our teachers are trying to benefit as many sentient beings as possible. Right? And in order to do that, they actually need the support of people willing to help them. So if we are in the in the excuse me, in the act of helping our teacher, reach as many sentient beings as possible, then we're also involved in gaining the merit of reaching as many sentient beings as possible. Not in the same way necessarily, but we're supporting that action. And so it's really good for our minds and it's good for our practice to work in that way. Here's another thorny point. In entering a relationship with a spiritual teacher, a a mentor, sorry, having appropriate expectations is important. Although we may have emotional needs, the role of dharma's teachers is not to fulfill these. (laughs) This one is also very hard. Sometimes, or for a while anyway. The teacher does not exist to meet our emotional needs. I mean, basically, no external person can do that. But we also have to grow the capacity to do this within our own minds. So we come here, I mean, I'm speaking to the monastery group here, but we come here... Um, I mean, we've met a teacher, We've whatever has brought us here. We also come with our need to be loved. We just flat all do. We all have it. We all come with it. And, you know, the expectation would logically be, oh, here's this kind, compassionate person. Why wouldn't that person fulfill all my needs? It's the way we've gone through the rest of the world. We've found a fine, compassionate person, we fall in love with them. Or, you know, we have parents that we think are supposed to do this for us and they didn't, and so we've been resenting that our whole life, or whatever. Somebody should be filling this need so maybe it's the spiritual teacher and it's not it's not in the job description it wasn't in any of those things that we talked about that list of nine things so um venerable children told the story about uh trying to get in to see the teacher and tell her life story because that's how we get to be loved right people understand us they'll empathize we'll get some empathy we've studied a little bit of ndc um, she said the teacher doesn't want to know your story <laughs> the teacher wants to know what's in your mind right now and that was uh, it was interesting to hear that, it's like oh that's the point the teacher wants to know what's in your mind right now so they can help you how we got here what the whole story was, where we came from I think there may be some relevance at some point but that's not how, it's not a useful Full, um, use of their time what they want to do is help us grow our own qualities to be able to um, help us I mean they want to know what's in our mind if it's virtuous it's good if not apply an antidote if you don't know the antidote I'll explain that to you and it doesn't mean that they're cold they care for us tremendously and they see potential in us that we don't actually know we have So the teacher is wanting us to become Buddha. That's their wish. That's their goal. I remember once, I can't remember the context or why this question came up, but Venerable was standing over there in Ananda and said something about, I want the, and it was nuns, all nuns at that time, I want these nuns to blossom. She was just like so beautiful, I want these nuns to blossom into their full potential. You can just see that that was the wish. And that was the wish of a spiritual mentor, of wanting, our, um, wanting us, wanting us students to fulfill our potential, to move along the path to enlightenment. That is their job. So she said here, we have to revise our notion of what it means to care for someone or for us to care for others. Teachers care for us by leading us to enlightenment, pointing out our faults, and having confidence in us. Caring for us by pointing out our faults is a little bit hard to adjust to. But, honestly, I mean, the more we can develop our own self-confidence about um, our asp- and our aspirations, which we must do, How the heck are we going to be able to do bodhisattva stuff if we're still waiting for somebody to please love me because I never got all the love I needed? I mean, there are ways to work with that need. (laughs) But as long as we're kind of like metaphorically handing our inner child to people to try to (laughs) help us, we can't do the bodhisattvas work. Our arms are full. So this is a very different kind of relationship. The spiritual mentor is not a therapist, and the teacher is very strong with us because they care, not because they're trying to hurt us or anything like that. So that is an important um, piece. And so I would just say from experience, when that um, strong guidance comes at us, it's useful from the side of the student to think, what do I need to learn from this? What am I trying? What are they trying to tell me? What's the, what, 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 what am I not seeing? What, what's the wall I've put up that needs to be penetrated? So it's helpful. It summarizes it here. The role of the spiritual mentor is to guide us in learning the Dharma critically reflecting on its meaning and correctly meditating on it. This is why it's so important to be under their guidance. However, spiritual mentors don't do the work. We must practice the Dharma ourselves. So a therapist focuses on the need of the individual and helps them navigate their lives. Yes? Yeah? Yeah. The spiritual mentor is responsible to all the disciples. That's also a big difference, unless you're like the only student, I guess. The spiritual teacher is responsible to all the disciples and responsible for helping the students learn how to be harmonious with each other. That's also part of the training. So those are um, that's the job description in general. And then there's a reflection here, so I want to get people's feedback on this. Why then, after all this, is it important to have spiritual mentors?
5: I think one of the biggest things that I've come to realize is that most of my whole life before the Dharma was that my focus was totally on all the eight worldly concerns, the happiness of just this life. And so the continual result of that was just going around chasing my tail because my focus was in the wrong place. When I met my spiritual teacher, you know, she's not looking over there. She's mm-hmm. looking over there she's looking up to buddhahood and those are totally you know discordant things you know so but to have i would never have known that there was something so much more to it and that there was so much more to me mm-hmm. as well yeah so but to get off of the merry-go-round of just this life and to look for something bigger and and more um just vaster and she, she's just not interested you know she's just not interested in playing the game and yeah. um and that's been really helpful and that has unloaded a lot of heaviness a lot of confusion um and it's brought a lot of joy to my life yeah well Because said. the directions changed
2: yeah yeah says to paraphrase Geshe sopa We have just climbed out of a bunch of bad rebirths. How can we possibly know how to get ourselves to enlightenment?
0: Beautiful.
2: That's exactly
0: it. That is exactly it.
2: And there's more. Yeah. (laughs) Um, For exploring at the beginning, it is good to know more teachers and their qualities, but ultimately when we practice, we need to rely on one teacher to guide us on our practice. More. Yeah. Someone to model what we aspire to be like. My teacher's integrity keeps me inspired and in wanting to grow on the path.
0: Yeah, yeah, all good reasons. This thing about having only one teacher once you settle down is um, is is a matter of kind of personal preference and personal karma. I think um, we don't have to have just one teacher, but. Uh, relying on a teacher for a period of time like, depending on the role of that person's life, you know, relying on one teacher for training. We can still have other teachers but um, when we say, when, when it says here, stick with your teacher for a period of time, that's where you have intense training. Okay, and just quickly, how does the relationship with a spiritual mentor differ from one with a school teacher or a professor?
5: My spiritual mentor has the compassion to um, point out my uh, faults and the uh, things that I'm not able to see clearly yet, whereas, you know, that's not true for school teachers or professors.
0: Yes, probably we wouldn't accept that too much. You don't. Get, what's the thing where you, you grade your professor? My <laughs> rate my professor. Yes, you do that as the professor. You don't probably don't get get too good. Your grades aren't so good. Your ratings aren't so good. You don't get so many stars. <laughs> yeah. So moving along because there's a lot and I'm going slow. Um, three types of practices. Three types of spiritual mentors. So um, Tibetan Buddhism includes three types of practice. Um, Here they are, the perfection, no, the fundamental vehicle, the perfection vehicle, and the vajra vehicle. The fundamental vehicle, fundamental vehicle, and so each type of, sorry. There are three types of practice, and so there are three types of teacher. So one person could serve all three roles in, in teaching all three, or three different teachers or a combination, but they have different purposes and they are regarded in different ways. So the fundamental vehicle um, teaches the four truths, they teach take refuge in the three jewels, they practice the three higher trainings. Um, in terms of ethical restraints, they avoid the ten non-virtues the Pradimoksha precepts and so forth. On the basis of the fund, of the fundamental vehicle, we go on to practice the perfection vehicle. One branch of the Mahayana is where we learn the methods to develop bodhicitta and um, practice the six perfections. We're heading towards buddhahood The Vajra vehicle is also a branch of the Mahayana. Thus, the motivation to practice is the same, but these practitioners have compassion so strong that they want to get to Buddhahood very quickly so they can help sentient beings, and so they receive empowerments and do the tantric practices. So each of these asks for different types of teachers. In the case of the fundamental vehicle teacher, we regard them as a wise elder and a sincere practitioner for whom we can learn. But we see them as an ordinary being. I mean, they're an ordinary being. For the perfection vehicle, we see that person as an emanation of the Buddha. And that doesn't mean, Venerable Joppa had asked this question, what does that mean? It means they are equal to the Buddha or similar to the Buddha in the sense that the karma accumulated in relation to that teacher is similar. Does that make sense? Right, so we see that it's like a spark of light coming off the Buddha. They're teaching exactly what the Buddha would teach. They're an emanation of the Buddha, and in relation to that teacher, we make the same kind of karma that we would if we weren't relating to the Buddha. That's what Venerable said. Then when we're doing the Pantra, so after we've trained in the fundamental vehicle, and we've trained in the perfection vehicle, and we are sufficiently mature in the Dharma, that's the time when we may request um, tantric teachings and meditate and start engaging with those meditational deities. So when we're doing tantric practice, following the empowerment that we get, we imagine ourselves and all sentient beings as Buddha, the environment as a pure land. And so in this case, it makes complete sense that we would also see the teacher as Buddha. We're imagining everybody else as the Buddha. It'd be weird not to imagine to try to see the teacher as Buddha, right? So this is the only context in which we're trained to see the teacher as a Buddha. That becomes, it's been very confusing in the Western world. And even so, this is still from our side. Whether the teacher is actually a Buddha or not is irrelevant. This is for our mind's sake. And if we're well trained and before we've taken the tantric empowerment, then we'll understand what this means. It's when we're not that we get super, super confused. So then we understand that what this is the importance of the spiritual mentor, then we have to know what kind of qualities to look for when we're seeking such a person. Choosing spiritual mentors is more important than choosing who you marry. Well, now we know why. We're gonna be with them our whole life (laughs) and they're gonna do the most important thing, they're gonna guide us in the most important way. So as Venerable said, we should get to know someone before we marry them, ideally. Doesn't always happen. And we should get to know the teacher before we take them on in that way. So the qualities of a spiritual mentor is what we're looking for. There's three different sets of qualities that, re, that relate to the three different kinds of spiritual mentors, but the I would say that the, the um, perfection vehicle list of 10 is the one that is most often taught and is uh, comprehensive enough, I think, to stand in for all three. You can read this yourself. Um, the Ortyam, Ornament of the Mahayana Sutras, Maitreya, uh, describes 10 qualities like this. Rely on a friend who is subdued, calm, and quiet. Has more virtue, is energetic, learned in scripture, has realized suchness, is endowed with eloquence, has a compassionate nature, and ignores weariness. That's kind of a Buddha. So to break those down in more detail, first... You're looking for a spiritual mentor who is disciplined and subdued in his or her behavior, which means grounded in ethical conduct. Secondly, has serenity and meditative experience, which is the higher training and concentration, and is pacified through developing wisdom. Has more qualities than the student is enthusiastic to practice dharma and benefit others, is learned in the scriptures, has realized the emptiness of all phenomena, not just the emptiness of the person, is skillful in giving teachings, articulate and able to explain the dharma clearly, is compassionate, always wishing to benefit others, Does not easily become tired or discouraged by expounding the dharma to others. That's a very impressive list. The ten qualities of an excellent spiritual mentor may be abbreviated into three. He or she should be learned and wise, disciplined, and have a kind heart. So what they say here is that it's very hard to find a teacher that has all ten of these qualities. It's very hard to find a teacher that even has half of these qualities. But to find, but to, 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 when we're looking at our spiritual mentors, to really look at this list and think about why each of these is important. And if we're examining teachers, and we should examine them even for years, looking very carefully at how they live their lives, what they're doing, how they're spending their energy, and so forth. How is their ethical conduct? How do they keep their precepts, whether they have five lay precepts or they have monastic precepts? What is the stability of their mind in general? What is their um, pacification through wisdom? How much do they understand the wisdom teachings? How, can they, um, how much do they live their life on the basis of understanding those wisdom teachings? We can really explore that. What or how much good qualities do they have? Do they have enthusiasm to practice and benefit? And so forth. So this list is really um, extremely useful. Extremely useful to think about and to study and to, you know, to look at all of our teachers. Once we've chosen our teachers, it's useful to look at this list to examine... Um, And admire and appreciate the ones we've chosen, to really appreciate the good qualities that they have on this list. So that's very useful. Then His Holiness goes on to say that, um, he said, the Buddha would not have described all these qualifications if um, simply having faith in anyone called a teacher or a nama were enough. So we really need to be able to figure out um, who we can rely on, who we can trust, and he also in the text recommends this. I recommend, this is really super practical, I recommend that people attend Dharma teachings and get to know the person first before you take the teacher on. Observe his or her conduct in daily life and assess their understanding of the teachings as best you can. Ask other students about the teacher's qualities. It's like interviewing, you know, getting references. And look at the qualities of those students to see if you want to become like them by following the same teacher. That's reasonable. If everybody's going out to the pub after the teachings, that may not be the crowd you want to run with, or maybe, I don't know. Check if the teacher has a good relationship with his or her teachers. This is really important, too. And read Dharma books so that you have a general knowledge of Buddhist tenets and can assess if this person's teachings are correct or not. And he says, after some time, if you see that this person teaches in accord with the Buddha Dharma, is reliable, knowledgeable, ethical kind and a good practitioner then form a mentor disciple relationship with him or her Here. his holiness says ask the teacher if he has eliminated observable faults and if he has accomplished in the vinaya and dharma i know who would think of that it's a direct question if you really wish to since have a you know sincerely check out a teacher doing this assumes the person is neither deluded regarding his own practice nor lying Yes, it is rather bold to ask a teacher this question, and most accomplished teachers will be hesitant to discuss their level of attainment. However, if you are satisfied so far by your investigation of the teacher, then practice what he teaches and see the results for ourselves. If through diligent, correct practice we realize the result, then we will certainly have our own experience and know that he's a reliable spiritual mentor. So then there's a whole section on seeking internal qualities and what the titles of a teacher are, but I'm not going to go there. We're going to go straight to becoming a qualified disciple because we have to do this quickly. We must make ourselves into a receptive vessel. Aryadeva describes a student suitable to realize emptiness, which we want to be, has three qualities. Do you remember what they are? Intelligence. Lack of bias. Interested listener. That's right. That's right. Unprejudiced, intelligent, and interested listener is called a vessel. So we have to prepare ourselves, right? So we talked earlier about being um, open to the teacher's guidance. And so this first one, impartial, open-minded, is also trying to be free of misconceptions and not be closed-minded. And it's very hard for us to realize our own biases, so the teacher can point those out for us. Intelligence is not academic intelligence, but discriminating capacity to discern what is correct and what is incorrect, what to practice, and what to abandon. So it's important to know that this intelligence is not high IQ intelligence. Um, In fact, sometimes, these, high, these conventional smarts obscure our capacity to hear the Dharma. I never thought of this, but Venerable said, you know, a Ph.D. in um, materialist, materialism can't hear the Dharma. That's not their worldview. On the other hand, someone who's very bright in the Dharma may not do very well in school. So um, everyone comes to the Dharma with different dispositions. And intelligence is of four types. This isn't in the book, but this is useful to know. Venerable brought this up when she was teaching. There's four kinds. One is innate intelligence that comes from previous lives. Two is intelligence born from hearing the Dharma and study. Three, intelligence born from reflecting and debating. And I would add discussion here for us. And four is intelligence born from meditating. So only one of these, of four, is innate. So it's not like, I'm not very smart, I can't do the Dharma. I mean, don't ever tell yourself, I'm too dumb to learn. And apply yourself and do it. From an old teaching, actually, when we back to that good teacher, good student retreat, way back, way back, I was looking at some of those old notes. And Venerable had told a story in 2011. She says there's two types of disciples as far as this intelligence thing goes. Say said one follows on faith and the other of higher quality follows based on wisdom. So this text was written by Maitreya, so it must be true, that mind. Or my teacher gave me the teaching, so it must be true. That's the faith. And it works. You know, it works for a while. But even better is having, the, f- having um, the mind that really investigates and thinks about why did they say that? How does this compare to that? How does that apply to me? And that kind of intelligence as a student carries us far and has nothing to do with what college we went to or didn't go to or whatever. And then the third quality here is interest, diligence, eagerness, and commitment to engage and stick with the practice. Chandra Kirti lists two more lists for quali- two more traits for qualified student. The first is respect and veneration towards the teacher. This makes us a receptive vessel to receive the Dharma, whereas arrogance and apathy prevent spiritual growth. And then the second one from Chandakirti is appreciating our teachers' wisdom and kindness and respecting the excellent qualities of the teachings moistens our minds and making it respective, receptive to the Dharma. So we're back to respect and veneration. Remember what I said about the Chinese students at the beginning? We've discussed respect a lot here at the Abbey. We haven't done it in recent years, actually, in the past. But it is something that... Um, You know, we often expect people to earn our respect, to prove themselves, that we're the judge. But, you know, once we've chosen our spiritual mentors on the basis of good qualities, um, to, to hold ourselves back and kind of demand them to be a certain way for us to respect them is really a detrimental mind, super detrimental mind. So we, Minerables said, we must learn to see the good qualities in others and not tear them down. And I would say especially our teachers. Nilanrim Chenmo says, It is stated in Chandra Kirti's commentary that if you, the listener, do not have all these defining characteristics of a suitable recipient of the teachings, you don't have these qualities as a student, then the influence of your own faults will cause you will cause even an extremely pure teacher who instructs you in the teachings to appear to have faults. So what Lama Tsongkhapa is saying here, or Chandra Kirti, I guess, is saying here, is that if we don't um, cultivate these five qualities in ourselves, um, we're, we're running the danger of our own faults obscuring our view of the teacher so that we can't be taught. And that's a problem. So the chapter concludes with two similies, which we're not going to cover. Um, but I highly recommend studying the Lamrim chapter on relying on the teacher in conjunction with this. And then let's spend just a couple of minutes on um, looking at these five qualities of an excellent disciple. Impartial or unbiased. Intelligent. Huh? Curious, eager, yeah, sure. Interest is the way it's translated here. And then also respect and veneration for the teacher and appreciation for the teacher's wisdom and kindness. Think for a minute about yourself and these five qualities. And the reflection is how to think about how each one would help you on the path. It's fruitful to do. But just in the few minutes that we have, I want to ask um, Brainstorm, what ideas you have to increase the five qualities to uh, enhance your suitability as a disciple in yourself? What are some ways to do that that we can share and support each other with?
1: As just um, pointed out in our last BBC um, to apply what the teachers instruct us to really... Practice to go through it ourselves, to be a disciple. So
0: to
4: apply what the teacher taught us, and then and Mm -hmm. that will grow our qualities
1: and and practice it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: I think sometimes to following a form can help you grow your mind in that direction. So I think a lot of the things we do here about you know Mm. how formally showing respect. I say this because I always remember when. Um, Venerable Kalden was here, and there was a Tibetan nun. And they were both at least 10 years or more older than me and had been ordained so much longer. I was ordained maybe one, two years. And I went down to lead the meditation in the chapel, and two of them stood at the back waiting for me to come in. And they waited, you know, like with reverence. And I was like, uh... <laughs> and they waited for me to sit, then they sat down. But that was respect for the Dharma, right? And it made yeah. me realize, oh, that's how they see this meditation session. I need to lead this properly. I don't know. So, just little formal things like that can help, I think.
0: Yeah, thank you. That goes back to our um, resistance to uh, form sometimes, you know, and to remember, you know, what respect means. I'm glad you said, too, that it was not respect for the person. This is really, really um, important for us as monastics to look at. Um, because, you know, sometimes we don't experience it here very much, but like the first time you go to Taiwan and there's somebody wanting to give you a red envelope with an offering and you you can't say, no, no, no. This because they're not giving to you. They're giving to the Dharma. <laughs> they're giving to your role as the Sangha. And they're wanting to make merit. And our self... Ourself, our sense of self, our sense of um, you know lack of self worth, or whatever we would do that would push that away, um, is denying someone the opportunity to really make merit. For example, so I mean, if we get ourselves out of the way of this respect piece, um, and really look at the qualities of um, the people that we want to admire and respect, um, it comes easier. I
1: think if that makes sense.
0: Any other brainstorms for how we can develop these qualities in ourselves? Unless everybody thinks they have them all. How many people think they already have them all? Okay. Any other ideas, some
5: Simke? I think for me to be able to work on the um, impartiality, open-mindedness, I find that just my general attitude is I'm usually attached to my opinions and my ideas. So it's just even in the middle of community life, I can see a pattern of thinking that goes right into the Dharma. So there are teachings that make me uncomfortable, ones that stretch my thinking, ones that I don't understand. And I just get kind of, you know, lock my knees and just be resistant to it. So if I can be more open, even in my daily exchanges with the community where I need to take in some good ideas, suggestions, let go of my opinions, I find that it softens the resistance to the things that I i'm not totally on board with or don't understand or have preconceived notions about the dharma yeah thank you
1: but you know just before we started this um session tonight um some of the singaporeans pointed out how important it is for them to meet together and encourage each as and they have improved in their own dharma practice and relationship to one and the same we are doing here uh, as a group we learn from each other and um, so Yeah, even if you can't live with Dharma brothers and sisters, so to find online friends come together and um, encourage each other that many of our students from afar are doing already
0: Yeah, thank you. And that brings me also to the to the point that I was thinking of um, That they didn't bring up here, but venerable is certainly brought up in the past That um, respect within the assembly for one another also helps us cultivate good qualities for the teacher. Seeing the good qualities in the people around us. Practicing, training ourselves not to see the faults, but to, to see the good qualities and encourage that in each other helps create the harmony, helps also support the teacher because there's less work for the teacher to do when that's being done. So whether it's the the Dharma group or Dharma center or within the monastery, um, we support and grow our own capacity to have these good qualities with the teacher also in relationship to trying to cultivate them in relationship to other people. Um, So that we don't have a hierarchy of everybody is nice to the teacher and. Nasty to each other. doesn't work. Okay. So, in closing, His Holiness says, people who sincerely wish to attain liberation or full awakening will cultivate these qualities in order to become receptive disciples and increase the benefit they receive from listening to teachings. In doing so, they become more self-confident and responsible in their Dharma practice. So may we be self-confident and responsible in our dharma practice. We take responsibility for our own growth and development. We take responsibility for our own enlightenment. We get to know what are the qualities of a spiritual mentor. We choose those two, and we're the ones who pick. It's not the teacher who says, "I I want you, and I want you. No, we choose who the spiritual mentor is. And then we choose whether we want to have these qualities of a disciple or not. We choose the extent to which we're willing to be guided. And we choose the extent to which we're willing to practice. And therefore, we are choosing how much we want to accomplish in this life and pretty much how do we want to be worn in the next life. So it's all in us. There's a lot of power. It's a lot of responsibility. Um, But the tools are right here. And I think Venerable Trichard and His Holiness have been really um, wonderful in their guidance for straightening out this kind of difficult,
2: sometimes difficult topic. I heard from a senior that when we prostrate to the sangha, the three bows: first bows to the robe, the second to the dharma, the third to the whole sangha community, not to an individual. That's great. Thank you.